Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Monday, March 20th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Dr. Ruth Backstrom. Before we get into things, here's a quick note from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Today on The Planet Today, we are joined by Dr. Ruth Backstrom. Ruth is an accomplished author, speaker, and educator who's an expert in facilitation methods that foster deeper conversations. She's a trained coach in the dynamic facilitation technique, a method designed to help people address and solve impossible-seeming issues through collaboration. Her book, Igniting a Bold Democracy, Empowering Citizens Through Game-Changing Reforms, comes out 10 days from now, March 30th, and offers a solution that has the potential to reform politics as we know it. Ruth Backstrom, welcome to the planet today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We are very excited to get to talk to you today. And I noticed when I was looking at your profile that you had spent 10 years working as a community advocate for sustainability. So keeping with the theme of our show, what first got you interested in sustainability? My husband, actually. <laughs> My husband was really concerned about the state of the planet. And um, so we started talking. And the first time I met him, actually, he started talking about how the interesting thing about this time is that uh, computers can now give us the knowledge to solve the problems. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting perspective. And I didn't know at the time that we'd then go on and start a uh, trans transition Durham movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you probably know, I've heard of transition. It's resilient creating resilient communities and so we focused on that for a long time with it with another community center that was here in town awesome so yeah i think it it's really interesting how and i think we're probably going to get into this a little bit more but sustainability and environmentalism has such a strong overlap with a lot of causes that really all of our listeners here on the show care about so even though that might not be your primary focus right now, it's really cool that that's, you know, something that you spent a lot of time working on. Yeah. And it was at a time when it was tough because in North Carolina, they just passed a law saying that you couldn't determine any policy. It was 2012. It just, they passed a law that you couldn't determine any policy based on the hundred year claim that, that uh, climate science would, you know, that the shores of North Carolina would be washed away because it might affect the insurance policies. At the time. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> just to give you just to give you a glimpse of where we were back then. 
it's it's so tough how I feel like every single time we uncover something, it's like, oh, why didn't this happen? Or why did this go a certain way? It, it's because of money. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's money in our decision making and not really prioritizing long-term impacts of some of those decisions. So that's right. yeah, more power to you, I guess. <laughs> I think, like I mentioned, a lot of our conversation can be applied to environmental policy, but just generally speaking, when did our current political system get so off course? Yeah, it's, the late 1970s actually is when most people date it to, with the rise of special interests. Um, you know, the voice of the people really got sort of taken out, and corporations mm-hmm. became much more. The corporate agenda became much more uh, prevalent. They sort of dated a lot of people. A lot of historians dated from the. Powell Amendment, which was passed in 1971, but it wasn't really till later when it was implemented. And there's debate about how much that memo, which was sent to the Chamber of Commerce, suggesting that the corporations need to have a response to a lot of the reforms that were coming down the line because they were concerned that uh, it was eroding their power. And so they came back in a big way. So lobbying became a huge thing at that point. Before mm-hmm. then, you know, people still had a certain amount of power in what was going on. And it's so interesting how, you know, I I think a lot of times we feel kind of helpless and there are, there are a ton of solutions, which I'm sure we're going to be able to get into later in this interview. But I think it's not a unique thought to say that we don't have the same power that we may have had before I was born. Yeah, that's a great point. Because one of the things I actually go, go into in my book is the movements of the 60s. And I look at the power that was expressed in those movements was just tremendous. And it was because, well, it was for several reasons. One, special interest hadn't come in. There was much more equality. That's a huge problem. We we, mm-hmm. we hear that as sort of a left-wing talking point, but it's really, it's a real problem for our democracy. You can't sustain democracy when you have such high levels of inequality. And there's an interesting study done by Washington State University with 14 other universities that looked at inequality over history. And it said the only thing that that changes is revolution. It becomes inevitable if you haven't changed the inequality in some really important way. Yeah, absolutely. And I forget where I saw this statistic, but and I'm probably going to butcher the numbers a little bit. But the the income disparity between the top 1% and the rest of the general population in America right now is greater than it was at the French Revolution. So that's a little alarming. And, you know, maybe now is a good time to change the income inequality a little bit before we get to the whole revolution. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Very good point. And yeah, I've seen that same statistic. And it's that they they actually have more money than the middle class now, which has really never been true before in our history. And, And I do talk a little in my book about the legacy of of our past, where we, in 1944, we invested like 7.8 million vets could go to college for free. And we invested in people in a way that no country had ever done before. It's like we've forgotten our own legacy almost. And we need to go back to that. And I think this is a good point to say some of the good stuff that we... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is all across the world now, citizens' assemblies are popping up. And it's really exciting to watch the voice of the people coming back through these powerful assemblies. So would you mind speaking a little more to that? When when you say citizen assembly for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, what do you mean by that? And maybe can you give an example? Yeah, I'm going to give an example close at home, actually. Washington um, State did one. 
And it's usually like somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 people are gathered together. And then there's stages, you know, the first they they're selected to represent the population, but it's ran a random selection. So in other words, if there's certain percentage of the population that's African-American, that same percentage is represented in the group, but it's randomly selected, the people who are asked to, to join. And the, the different points of view are supposed to be represented equally too. So you get kind of a cross section of America in the assembly. That's the, the goal anyway. And then they're given information from experts and then they go through a process of deliberation and come up with recommendations that are then given to the legislators. That's so important too, to have a diverse group of thinkers all coming together because no matter how much we try, and I know a lot of us are trying to listen more and maybe take a step back, we, we don't have the same shared experiences the way that we like to think we do. And to get all of you know, those different voices coming in with different perspectives, I think that's going to be the ultimate best way to actually see real change that that does create a better outlook for all of us moving forward. Yeah, that's right. I In my book, I point out that I think our diversity is our greatest asset. It's not a liability. And that's because when it comes to problem solving, the more opinions in the room, the deeper your conversation, the more possibilities, the more innovative you can be. So, these, this is a great thing, especially for us, because this leads to our greatest strength, really. And I'm sure we have at least one listener right now who's thinking of, you know, their boss at work, who's surrounded by a bunch of people that just say yes to all the boss's ideas, and <laughs> you don't get anything done. So it's, you know, the same thing applied to the the region or, or country. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting book by Judith Glazer called Conversational Intelligence. And she went into companies and she found that if she could change the conversations in the company, deepen them and get them to a point where they were really problem solving effectively, that she could change the bottom line. You know, she could take companies from million dollar companies to billion dollar companies because their problem solving was so, so much deeper. And it and there's a term that um, researchers call it using their collective intelligence because you're bringing out the wisdom of the group, the whole wisdom of the group. Like we talk about an individual being in their zone, but groups can have their zones too. Yeah. And so this is an exciting thing because I feel like some of these assemblies and some of these citizen councils and citizens juries, which are just smaller versions of citizens assemblies, can bring out this collective intelligence of groups that when they deliberate together, they can be much more wise than any one individual. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really, really fascinating. So I, I do want to take a, a quick step back. We had kind of alluded to this in talking to uh, different people's experiences and getting a diverse group of people together. In your book, I believe you reference our country's racial stalemate. So what do you mean when you make that reference? And can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So that's actually a reference to a speech that um, Barack Obama gave on his campaign trail called A More Perfect Union. And he used that term, which I thought was such a brilliant term. He, you know, he's such an amazing speaker. Yeah. <laughs> and he he did such a magnificent job of showing the tensions between these between you know the white working class who feel like they've been cut out and the African Americans who feel like they've been left out for so long and the anger on both sides, and saying you know there's some legitimacy to both those feelings, and that we we can hold those tensions 
together, which I think is a really great point that we don't have to think, use the term, we don't have to think of it as a zero sum game. Yeah. Your progress is at my expense. And that's really true. We should think that we can meet all these needs, really. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of, I think the term is whataboutism, where people will say, this is a cause that we need to pay attention to and we need to focus on more. And instead of saying, yeah, that is a good cause, there's also another good cause we could pay attention to as well. A lot of people tend to jump into the, well, what about this? Why aren't we caring about this one instead? When you're right, it's not a zero-sum game. We can all <laughs> progress when we work together. Right. Absolutely. So in talking about the racial stalemate in our country, um, do you feel that the environmental justice movement has been impacted by this at all? Or is that a little separate of an issue for you? It's hard to tell. I, I mean, obviously, the um, environmental justice has not received the attention that you would like. You know, it's they've cleaned up the air quality in a lot of white communities much more than they have in African-American yeah. communities. I mean, it's just the same story that we always hear that the attention just goes, you know, attention goes to the people who have power, mm -hmm. basically. And there's not as much attention. I mean, yeah. So obviously, that's it's not being attended to like it should be, for sure. Yeah, we did a story, oh man, maybe it could have been last summer at this point, but it was about redlining. And a lot of the neighborhoods that were redlined 100 years ago, they still have lower air quality and they still have almost segregated communities where, where people of color and lower income folks are gathering in areas that are no longer redlined, but we're still seeing almost that same impact. So to, to me, I feel like that does kind of speak to how the environmental justice is, movement is impacted by the racial stalemate. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think um, what, when I talk about the GI Bill, there's also the downside of the GI Bill is that African-Americans were left out of all those benefits. So what you do is you create, it's sort of like being on a race and you give one one group, you know, a head start mm -hmm. and the other group can never catch up because they're so far ahead. And, and you can see that on so many levels, like, you know, there's 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 income studies that show one out of five African-American adults are growing up in third generational poverty versus one out of 100 white families are experiencing that just to show that you know, the difference. And, and, you, and it comes out in so many different yeah. ways. And it makes sense. It, it lays a basis for the kind of reparations that need to happen, because we actually engineered this difference. Absolutely. And I think that kind of speaks to a lot of people feel like the system is failing us when in reality, the system was kind of designed to, like you said before, keep people that are in power, in power. That's exactly what I'm saying in my book, Igniting a Bold New Democracy. The system is failing us and we we need to come together. Citizens need to come together with legislators and start to recreate the system, the systems. Actually, there's multiple systems that are failing us. Yeah. In fact, the vision I have is that if each state took one system and created an agenda for change and that's kind of already happening, but you could make it a more um, sort of a more systematic plan. So mm -hmm. like Rhode Island is looking at homelessness Washington state has done the most. It, it's the only state that's done a climate assembly. They could take us, you know, that could spread. We should have climate assemblies throughout the United States, really. No, I definitely agree with you there. And I, I do have a question um, more specifically to how women can play a role in that. So why do you believe that women need to be more active in reshaping our democracy? Well, I think a lot of the, I think we're in a period of huge change. 
is one of the points that I make in my book too, that the, to prepare for the future, there's a lot of emotional intelligence that has to be kind of uh, brought out. We have, we have to be, mm-hmm. you know, we have to be comfortable with change and we have to make everyone comfortable with it. There's a lot of fear and anxiety. And it's really, I think that's something that women have often a talent for because they've had to raise kids and they've just had a lot of experience in that whole realm of emotion, you know, showing and expressing emotional intelligence and doing things. There was an article I read about the, how some of the women governors did a great job with COVID because they could hold a space of compassion for people feeling tired, but at the same time, you know, sort of give them courage to to keep on, you know, keep on you wearing the mask or whatever it was they yeah. wanted them to do and stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, w- when it comes to women leading compassionately, I'm thinking of my sister right oh. now. So hi, Jules, if you're listening, but she's a mother of four. Uh-huh. And, you know, during COVID, it seemed like she just really knew that she had to be there for her kids, but at the same time, make smart decisions for her family. And she just handled it all with with a ton of compassion and grace and go on and on about my sister. But I I think that that's not a unique story to how a lot of women and a lot of moms handled that situation and how they handle situations like that in general. Yeah, it was really tough. I went and stayed with my daughter for a while because she was a single mom at the time. And I couldn't see how she was going to handle her job and her son. I mean, it was a really tough time for women, I think. And uh, I'm sure with four, that must have been. Yeah. Just the imagine just the Zoom calls itself must have been. Yeah. <laughs> it's never a dull moment there. But the good thing is that they had their companionship. I don't know what the age range yeah. is, but that was one of the hardest things for uh for kids. In fact, I heard on the NPR the other day, I'm not sure it was NPR, but some station, somebody complaining and saying maybe this wasn't the best thing to do to have every all the kids locked down for so long and stuff. It's been a really hard one. You know, it's tough because I feel like there's no right answer. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that's something we're going to run into a a lot as we (laughs) discuss more policy things. Yeah, It's tough to come up with one plan that every single person is going to be okay with. But what we have to strive for is the thing that's going to do the best for the most. Right. And I think the more we work together on things, the better. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up... um, when speaking about women is that women are also often on the forefront of the environmental movement. You know, I'm, I'm even thinking of last year's conference of parties, uh, cop 27, where it seemed like every single young climate activist that, that we saw speaking either at the conference or outside of it was a woman between the age of 18 to 30. And it's these young women leading the charge. So, you know, whether it's, playing a role in, in bettering our democracy or our planet, it seems like women are very much on the forefront of these things all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Greta Thunberg is always the example I use of how we can all be activists, you know, to start at 15. It's, it's kind of an amazing story. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy how much that has just taken over the world where so many young people across the planet now are doing her school strikes for climate on Fridays. And yeah. it started with one person just saying, why does this matter if we can't have a better planet? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's all it took. I know. And, you know, it's, it's the innocence of, of just telling the truth that's so powerful in that whole experience, that whole story, I think, you know. Yeah, maybe, maybe someone listening to this will be like, you know what? On Thursday, I'm going to do a school strike for a better democracy. 
Yes, that is a point in my book that we really need a strong pro-democracy movement. And that's and we can use these assemblies for not only climate change, but other things as well. They used it. This is the best story. They used it in Melbourne, Australia, to help them figure out how to get rid of their deficits. Really? Yeah. Now, can you imagine a city in the United States opening their books to people? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But they loved it. I mean, both the citizens and the legislators, almost everything they suggested, they did. And they loved the experience so much that people described like some woman who was in labor was calling in from the delivery room just to make sure her points got into the discussion. It's amazing. (laughs) And I think it's because people are hungry to be involved and to feel like more than, I mean, one of the things that um, this man Manfred who runs uh, citizen councils in Austria, which I want to talk, talk to you about in a minute was saying that citizens want to go from being consumers to actually being you know, part of the process and really yeah. making c- contributions and stuff. I feel like people always say around election season, if you don't vote, then you can't complain the rest of the year. This is taking that a step further. You know, if you don't get involved, then you can't complain. Yeah, it would be great if more people did vote. And yeah. the complaint is always, well, we don't we don't have the, you know, we don't have the right candidates. And that's, that's certainly true. We, we probably need more candidates and better candidates. Uh, but that's going to come when we get involved. I think we yeah. underestimate our power is the biggest thing. So yeah. so let's talk more about your book. So I guess start me off with a quick elevator pitch to why people should read it, what it's about, and then maybe we can dive into some more specifics that we haven't alluded to already. So my book is about creating a pro-democracy movement and and fixing, creating a higher quality of life for everyone. And that we have to get into this sensibility that we're all in this together. We've kind of got, I mean, we've kind of got these clashing ideologies going. But what I really would like is to see us come together in either citizens' councils or citizens' assemblies and start to have conversations about how we can all change the quality of life together. Because there's sort of a divide and conquer thing. If we keep like fighting, we won't notice that our money keeps going up to the top and yeah. we have less and less resources to create the quality of life that we want. I, f- I forget what pundit I was listening to recently, but they were saying that, you know, we have so much more in common with the other side than we might realize, but the people who are in power stay in power by having us bicker. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. That's just what I'm saying. I'm glad he's yeah. highlighting that. Um, and so I talked, first of all, about the leadership that we need. We really need mm-hmm. courageous leaders um, who could speak honestly about the situation and, and come up with innovative solutions that really meet the needs of multiple groups. Because it's it's kind of one of the problems is we, we get caught in thinking, well, should we meet this person's needs or this group's needs? But we really should just think holistically about meeting most, you know, most people's needs. Yeah. And so I talk about leadership as the first section. And then the second section, I talk about movements and how powerful movements can be because they give you a taste of the future that you want to go towards. And and they also demonstrate the solidarity and the kind of connections that we want to have in the rest of our society. That was one of the more profound things I have I have heard in a while. Oh, good. <laughs> And then the third section, I talk about game-changing conversations. Like, what are the conversations that would lead to reforms that were really deep? 
You know, like if we just took money out of politics, for example, that would be yeah. huge. And if we could create a pro-democracy movement that focused on the really important reforms and brought us together, like everyone agrees that we need to take money out of politics. Yeah. And start there. Start with what we agree on. And Maine is a good example. Like they have been funding their state legislators for a long time, I think since the 1990s. And they get these really progressive legislators because of that. I mean, the Supreme Court has made it more difficult because the, yeah. Yeah. But I still think we should do it and and try and get around, you know, try and find in innovative ways to get around it. I think taking big money out of politics is, we were talking about this the other day on our show, actually, but it just seems like it would solve so many issues, if not all of them. Because right now, you know, you elect people, whether we're talking about local level, state level, federal level, you elect officials to represent you to make the state or the country better. And it's really hard to do that when their pockets are being lined by companies, organizations, people that they're more concerned with their profits than they are about making the country better. And that's what makes the voice of the people so important because it gives the politicians cover to do what they should have done in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So I want to tell you about Austria. So Austria in 2005 started a um, system where they convened a group of like 15 people to look at whatever they wanted the voice of the people on. They, so the offer, the office of future related activities was in charge of convening the group. And then the group would answer some, give their opinion on something. Mm -hmm. And then it would get, they would take it to world cafe events. So the public would give input. And then there would be decisions about what, what the legislators might implement. And then there'd be an implementation team uh, that would implement the, the things that they came up with. And this started in 2005 and it was so successful that by 2015, it was institutionalized so that every year they would call forth a, a group and they would meet on an issue. And just to give you an example of a story. Yeah, So they, that is so awesome. I know. And these are the kind of things that we could put into our system. It's It's, it's an easier thing than a citizen's assembly. It's not as expensive and it's random, a random selection. And some issues you don't really need representation. It's just, you know, some, some of you might more want more representation than others. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at immigration, which when they first got the data, so that usually they would get the data from the office on all, you know, how many immigrants were coming in and stuff. When they first looked at the data, they were like shocked at the numbers. And they said, we think you need to be a little more transparent about this in the future. And then they started talking amongst themselves and said, you know, somebody said, you know, we have to see the people behind these numbers. They, they use a particular technique called dynamic facilitation, which is was invented by Jim Ruff in Washington State. And it's a very powerful technique for bringing out sort of the collective wisdom of the group. And so that kind of stirred everybody's compassion for these people. And they said, we need to get them jobs. And then there was one guy in the group who said, well, I don't think we need to get them jobs. And the great thing about dynamic facilitation is you you invite everything into the group. So, so the facilitator said, okay, why is that? And he explained that his niece hadn't been able to get jo a job for like a couple of years. Why should they get jobs? And they, the group said, well, why don't we open it up to everybody so your niece can attend these as well? And have yeah. this, you know, so the group gets so it sort of weaves in the different perspectives of everyone and comes out with this sort of solid 
answer. And it's and people say it's such an exciting experience because it's there's you come out with this sense of solidarity at the end, whereas you came in in the beginning with all these different opinions and yeah, you know. I'm I'm sure at the end. I mean, granted, this is a big generalization, and I'm sure you know not everyone felt this way all the time. But I bet most of the time, people leaving those those conversations were thinking, you know, I just helped create a better community. Yeah, exactly. One one gentleman said, you know, this is the best political conversation I've ever had. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so I have one more co- uh, question for you. Uh-huh. What steps could my listeners be taking to help enact change, whether it's in their own communities, um, at, in their state, you know, even at the federal level, what can they be doing at home to start that process? Yeah, that's a great question. Start by asking questions. There's a story in my book um, of a woman who did that in Colorado. She was in this in Summit County, Colorado, and she was asking, how is it that our health insurance rates are so high. They were higher than some people's mortgage payments. Jeez. They were the highest in the country. And she went to various people and tried to get some kind of answer. And they were all like, yeah, that's the way it is. You know, but she found, um, she went to her, her, I think it was her insurance commissioner who said, well, there is this arcane law where you could like create a purchasing entity And so that's what she did. She created a purchasing entity, which meant she could actually buy, she could negotiate the rates of health insurance. So she went to the hospitals and then she went to the patients and she was back and forth trying to get the rates that that the insurance companies could bid on then. And she reduced it by 50%. That is amazing. I know. And it's just one person going on to... um, continuing to ask the questions but she yeah. also set this roadmap for for colorado soon having its own health care um, program in the state of colorado so it had this spin-off effect as well so i guess the the quick summary is next time somebody says oh, that's just the way it is exactly. don't accept that answer <laughs> that's right don't keep asking because there's often loops that that you can find if you keep asking and looking you know Absolutely. Ruth, thank you so much for your time today. This was so interesting for me and I'm sure for the listeners as well. If people want to keep up with your work or purchase your book, where is the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So they can go to my website, ruthbackstrom.com, which is B-A-C-K-S-T-R-O-M. And they can uh, ask for updates there on the launch, which is on March 30th. And they can, we'll send them updates and then they'll be aware of when to buy the book. Great. We will also link that in the show notes. So if you're listening now, just swipe up and click on that link to go check it out. All right. We end all of our interviews with three fun, rapid fire questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> Number one, what is your favorite animal? <laughs> A manatee. Amazing. <laughs> Number two, what is something that you do to be more sustainable in your own life? I walk a lot. Nice. And last one, what is one topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Citizen assemblies, I guess. Yeah. That is a great one to end on. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you again. I really appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I did too. And that will do it for today's episode. Thank you again to Ruth for her time today. 
Nick and I will be back on Friday for some quick hits to get you into your weekend. But until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT. For the Planet Today, I am Matt Norton. See you on Friday.